Hey everyone, it's been a long actually break for me. I took a week off to change podcast hosts, so I'm no longer on Anchor and I'm back with my old host, Libsyn. And this evening I've actually been re-uploading all of my files to remove the ad and also to rectify a technical issue. So, lesson to everyone, if you're going to change podcast hosts, be prepared to do some work because it takes a little bit of time. Um, hopefully that's a lesson a lot of you don't have to learn in, in your lives. I suppose it's the same as changing any other things or basically what I do at work every day around software stuff. So uh, I'm really glad to be back. I actually have been recording a lot. So I have about 10 episodes already recorded and more coming up and just some exciting things coming. Uh, personally, in my goal with comedy, um, I've added a new personal goal of just like doing a solo show. And I don't know why I took that on right now, other than to say that after the last year, I, and there's been a lot of things in my life that have happened where I don't take things for granted too much, but after the last year, I certainly don't. And so it was kind of like the opportunity was here to do Brighton Fringe and Camden Fringe, which are festivals in England. And I decided to take them, and I have someone I'm working with who I'll be interviewing on the podcast later this season, but we're just both doing solo shows and just checking it out. And I got some great news today. Um, I'm actually recording this on April 13th. Basically, I got some great news today, and I'm going to be doing two gigs at Brighton Fringe. One's my own, and then one's uh, on another bill. So just really awesome things happening. So um, kind of looking forward to just things getting back to a little bit of normal. We'll see. I hope that everyone listening is doing well. And if you're struggling right now, it's understandable. It's kind of a weird transition period right now from this time where everything kind of fell apart a year ago and we all just kind of stayed in our homes. And then to this period in the middle that I don't know about you, but I barely remember the fall and winter anymore. I just don't know what happened to the time. And then now we're transitioning into this anxiety ridden place of reintroducing ourselves to the public and some people never changed I guess so they might not know what that means but some of us have been alone for a long time and our apartments are just with our family and that's it and it's a time of change so just be gentle with yourself understand that even if the pandemic's not an excuse not to see people or not to see specific people I should say doesn't mean you still you can't say no so you can still say no you can still say, hey, you know what, I'm not feeling like doing that today or I want to go do something else. And you can still do that. You don't have to have COVID as an excuse. So just want to put that out there. Uh, we are opening up this week in London. So today, the well, yesterday the 12th was the first day pubs were open. And um, that's just outside. And it's pretty cool, though, because it's just going to feel a little bit more like what I was expecting when I moved here. So this episode... Um, this is an interesting one because I got into a discussion I wasn't expecting and I felt very vulnerable and I felt very angry at one point, but I didn't, I knew I couldn't react in an angry way because I'm talking to a guest and I'm recording the conversation. And I think if, if you think about your conversations being recorded and how you would talk when they're recorded versus when they're not. I almost think that's a good way of managing your behavior. Uh, at least for me, it is. So I, 
I was just thinking that might be an interesting thing to mention that, you know, think about what you would say if you knew you were being recorded. Uh, it's probably different than what you would say when you're not or what you do say when you're not. But um, my guest is Noel Bagwell, and he's really cool. I mean, he's a lawyer and the first lawyer I've had on here for sure. We met on a website where, you know, you can find guests and connect with people. And I'm going to be on his podcast coming up too. And I'll post when I'm on that. And I've had a good time talking to him, but we also stand on very different sides of certain things. And one thing that's really strange in these times that is that like, we don't have discussions with people we don't agree with very often. I mean, I know I've created for sure created, uh, just an information silo for myself. And I've created this echo chamber where, you know, I remove people from Facebook for different reasons. I hide people or don't follow them, things like that, just because I don't want to engage. And I think even, you know, just talking to friends and family, like some people believe you can't say anything anymore. You're not allowed to say anything anymore. It's like you can, it's just, there's consequences. People are going to call you out. And I deal with that in comedy too. Like people think, well, you can't joke about things. Well, you can, you just better, it better be funny. And so we got into a discussion about cancel culture and it was a hard discussion at the time because I kind of felt myself digging in, but I knew I had to be open and I had to listen and I had to show respect and Noel was being respectful to me. I mean, as far as like listening when I responded to him. And I think it was good because it was really this hard practice. And I think I do encourage people, especially with family, you know, family, it's hard with family because I know I don't agree with my family on hundred percent of everything. And a lot of people don't, but there's this art of trying to listen and it's not going to end up in agreeing, but just listening and finding the commonalities. And I think we did that. Um, it was difficult to listen back to because I was nervous. I was nervous about, oh, what did I really say? <laughs> you know, and we we do get into some subjects that might be difficult. So I want to warn people that, you know, we do talk about the the murders in Atlanta uh, where the person went to massage parlors and killed people. And um, yeah. It it was hard to just, it was newer back then, but even now I still think it's hard to, for me to just look around and think that someone could just come up with a gun and kill me or kill someone and, you know, this keeps happening. And um, we, we went back and forth a little bit and I am definitely interested in hearing what people think and I appreciate Noel, you know, trusting me to have that discussion with me on this podcast, I think that it was valuable and I'm, I'm glad to share it now. You know, I had a choice. I could have cut it. I could have not shared the episode, but I think it's important that people listen to conversations and people also have conversations with people they don't agree with. And it's something I should do more. Um, there were some things that I don't agree with that are said, but I don't even know if I agree with everything I said at this point, honestly. Um, I, one thing I didn't really argue back on was a statement about the media. And I just want to say that I really respect journalists and I think that they work very hard. I listen to the daily. It's my favorite, one of my favorite podcasts. And I know the reporters work very, very hard there to 
uncover stories and I think we're all biased in our own ways, but I do think that these people work really hard. And so I, I want to make sure, and I feel like I'm even media doing this, right? This is a form of media. And I, I don't think all media is bad. I do think that the media does sometimes not cover things that they should or the way they should. And I think we've even seen that with the violence against AAPI people. It hasn't been covered. And so, um, I don't know, I'm rambling here, so I think I'll stop, but I I just want people to really listen with open ears and I and someone the thing is there's going to be someone listening who agrees with everything Noel said and someone who agrees with everything I said and that's great and I would like to hear from you if you want to share anything with me but I just think again that overall I'm really proud of this podcast this episode but the podcast in general but this episode and just how two people were able to talk to each other and I really I had a great time with Noel. I think he's funny. Um, I hope if I ever do comedy in Tennessee, where he lives, that you know we'll meet and he'll come out and see that. And uh, um, he's one of the guests I do hope to meet one day. But uh, yeah, just here's the podcast and enjoy. And thanks again for being here this week. Welcome to More Than Work, the podcast reminding you that your self-worth is defined by more than your job title. I'm Rabia, an IT project manager, comedian, nonprofit volunteer, and sometimes activist. Every week, I'll chat with a guest about pursuing passions outside of work or creating meaningful opportunities inside the workplace. As you listen, I hope you'll be inspired to do the same. All right, welcome back, everyone. This week I have a guest whose podcast I'll actually be on too, so I'll put that link out for everyone to see. And I definitely recommend it. I've listened to quite a few of his episodes. It's Noel Bagwell. He's the founder of Executive LP and the creator of Profit from Legal. How's it going, Noel? Pretty good. And so, so you're the one. You're the one who's been listening to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for that. Like uh... the one in the UK. Yeah, well, we have a, an audience in uh, six countries now, so it's it's growing. It's we've only been doing profit from legal since uh, January seventeenth. So, I joke about the audience being small, but it really is growing. And and for just the very short period of time we've been doing it, it's it's been growing pretty rapidly. I'm happy with it. Yeah, it's definitely a slow burn from what everyone yeah. says on the podcast growth. And then you will see. I have a friend who has a podcast. She's British, or well, she's Welsh actually, actually, but um. She has a big audience in Mexico, and she's not sure why this happened. <laughs> so it's gonna—it's funny to see how that goes. Is—is uh, is Wales the like the if 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 the United Kingdom were North America, mm-hmm. would Wales be the Mexico? Would they be? Well, or is so that it, like I'm trying to draw a cultural parallel? Or they're part of the United. King- they'd be like maybe Alaska yeah. in a way. Alaska, like, okay. in a way maybe because like. I don't know. Because they're separate, but, but part of it. Yeah, yeah. got it. Yeah, something Guam? like that. No, not Yeah, not well, quite Prince Guam. Charles is the Prince of Wales. Prince of Wales. And yeah. they have their own language there and their own accent. Which is really. cool. Mm-hmm. My middle name, Reese, is actually, it goes all, it goes back, it's R-E-E-S-E, but before that, in uh, previous generations, it was R-E-E-S, and I think before that it was R-H-Y-S, which is Welsh. Yeah. 
So um, going back like generations through my uh, ancestry or whatever on Ancestry.com, it's kind of cool to see the progression. And, and a lot of my uh, genetic makeup is a mixture of, of English, Irish, and French, and uh, Native American. So um, I did that. My dad got us all the Ancestry DNA things for Christmas a couple of years ago. And so it's been really interesting to see my map of my DNA marker map kind of expand as they continue to do research. Yeah, and it changes. I, I did that too. And uh my mom got super annoyed because all of a sudden I came up as 12% Italian. And then I just like accused her. Like, why didn't you tell me I was Italian? But did like, you, well, did you accuse her? Did you I, like, no, I started saying, I mean, I was kind of probably being offensive, but first I, I said, you know, I told her I'm Italian. She goes, well, that's definitely your dad's side. So she was your dad's side. offensive about that. Then I started doing Godfather and like, she'd be annoyed at the neighbor. I was like, <laughs> Oh, what do you want me to do to them, Mom? I'll take care of them for you. And she'd get so annoyed. And then, she, what do you want for dinner? I'd say, Oh, I want pizza. I want pasta. And she just gets so it got old. <laughs> I noticed they added an emoji for the the classic Italian hand gesture, hand which gesture. you're not recording. You're not recording video, so you can't see me doing the the hand thing. But like, I noticed there's now an emoji for that, and I just thought this is the best. This is the best of the new emojis that have been recently released. It is because it was. It's definitely a mood. You know, yeah, hard- it is a mood. It's a hardcore mood. Yeah, like I heard you were talking about me. Yeah, you know? like don't make me come over there and then you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's no, excel- so that's, excellent. That's good. So let's get to it. Sure. You're a lawyer, so if I say, oh, my guest is a lawyer. Yeah, I need to put on be- my wig, my wig <laughs> and my robes. Yeah, you're a barrister. But yeah, so I mean, you're. I have quite a few friends who are lawyers actually, or I'm sorry. I apologize just on, (laughs) on behalf of all of us. Yeah. Sorry about that. But you went into a different aspect of it than them. I mean, there are all different places you could go. So talk about though, the space you're in and like how you founded profit for legal from, from legal. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I I hate lawsuits. Uh, I hate the billable hour. So I'm just going to talk about all the things I hate. Uh, people are like, why the hell did you go to law school? You hate lawsuits. You hate the billable hour. Like, what the hell are you even doing as as a lawyer then? And uh, I originally wanted to be an entrepreneur, you know, and I still I still want to be – I still am an entrepreneur. I consider myself a lawyerpreneur, if you will. Um, so a bit of an entrepreneur first. And then law is is my medium. So just like a, an, a painter or a sculptor might say, I'm an artist. I think I'm an entrepreneur in the way that they're an artist, and law is just the medium. Um, whenever I get out in the world and talk to people, often, like if I go to networking events or whatever, people are like, oh, you don't talk like a lawyer, you don't look like a lawyer, you don't act like a lawyer. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? And I think for a lot of people, what they expect is um, me to have a somewhat large flagpole-sized stick up my ass. Um, and for me to just be like aloof and condescending maybe a little bit or just hard to talk to and unapproachable, I think they have that impression of lawyers. And that's really unfortunate because we're, we're really not like that, most of us. Um, I mean, lawyers are careful. But really when it boils down to it, lawyers are the kids who when they played board games as a child, they read the underside of the box top that had all the rules and they just wanted mm-hmm. to play by the rules. And that's that's what we do is we help people – understand the rules by which they're playing and we also help them understand that just because you didn't read the rules to the game doesn't mean you can play the game however you want 
just because you're not aware of the rules doesn't mean you can just do whatever you want. Like if I just ignore the law, it'll go away. That's not the way it works. <laughs> um, you have to actually play by the rules or it's going to catch up to you at some point. And I believe what Yvonne Chouinard said, he's the founder of Patagonia clothing line. He's an American rock climber, French Canadian descent, um, really sharp guy, billionaire, um, gives 1% of, you know, I think Patagonia gives Mm -hmm. 1% of all their revenue to environmental, um, environmental charity. Uh, so it's just, he's a good guy, but he said, um, profit is what happens when you get everything else right. And I think that for entrepreneurs, I'm on a mission to show them that you can get everything else right in your business. You can have the legal support that you need, and that can still be profitable. Like legal doesn't have to just be a cost center for your business, which is the way they mm-hmm. see it. They don't. They want to ignore the rules. They don't want to do things the right way because they think it's going to be too expensive. It's going to be too costly. Oh, we don't want to get the lawyers involved. The price of everything goes up, and it just gets impossible to do stuff. That's the wrong idea. That's the wrong approach. It's not really like that. In fact, doing things the right way is actually more profitable, and it's more profitable to do it the right way in advance than to do it, not do it the right way, and then encounter a problem that you have to fix. It's more expensive to mm-hmm. fix the problem than it would be to, to prevent it in the first place. So I'm just on a mission to, to change the way people think about legal services and thereby change the way they use legal services, and, and I believe that they can actually profit from having preventive legal support. Um, but that that requires them to change the way they think and the way they're approaching using legal services. So that's what my podcast is all about and what the new Profit from Legal uh, product from Executive LP is all about. That makes sense. And, I mean, do you agree that a lot of times people treat a lawyer almost like – well, even almost like some people treat a doctor like they don't call them until they need them. And then it's usually a bit late or it can be a bit late or it's a bit more difficult. Like, yeah. Well, my wife told me or asked me the other day, I was having uh, like a high elevated heart rate. My Apple mm-hmm. Watch, you know, I felt it, you know, before I was, I was just not a hypo, hypochondriac that just lives my life by my Apple Watch. But like I had uh, just this weird rapid heart rate. It was, it was over, it was like 106 and then it was like 108. And then my toddler and I went, took a walk and I came back and it was like 123. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God, what the heck is going on? And my, you know, I knew exactly what it was because my Apple watch was telling me, but I just felt, I felt bad. And uh, my wife said, why don't you go to the, why don't you go to the doctor? Do you need to go to the doctor? And I was like, why? That, what are they? I'm going to pay them a couple hundred dollars, and what, are, what the hell are they going to do about it? They're not going to do anything about it. Like, what, what could they do about it? Nothing. There's nothing they can do. And part of that is my own ignorance because there probably was something that they could do, you know. But for me, it was just like the what I imagined they could do, mm-hmm. and the benefit of that wasn't worth me having to actually want for one thing go to their office and wait and like jerry seinfeld said they have the waiting room there's zero chance of you not waiting you're going to wait that's <laughs> that's why they call it the waiting room that's what it's for like he, he's absolutely right about that i don't want to go and sit in the doctor's office wait to see the doctor if you can even get an appointment yeah especially now right well i mean you, you look you guys are under lockdown for serious but here in nashville mm-hmm. i mean it's still a pain with all the COVID protocols and all that. And you, you spend all that money, all that effort, all that time for what? Uh, yeah, you need to drink more water, um, maybe take a nap uh, or like <laughs> here's some here's some aspirin, you know, like I feel like WebMD would do just as good a job. And I know that somewhere my sister who's a physician's assistant, my other sister who's a pharmacist are probably like 
no, that's wrong. They probably want to give me hell over that. But <laughs> it is the way I feel. And I feel like people think of lawyers the same way. And the only cure for that, pardon the pun, is just better education about what benefits a lawyer can provide and exactly how they would do it. And not to the point where people are going to try to do it themselves, botch the job, and then you know have an expensive fix required. But enough that they can at least say, okay, well, if I go and I talk to this professional, they can provide meaningful relief to this very specific problem that I have and, and that there's actually a legit methodology for it. They're not just going to tell me, yeah, yeah, you're out of shape, boy, you know, uh, eat better and exercise. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to pay $300 for eat better and exercise. I know that. Yeah. And, uh, with the law, it's, you know, people don't realize that, uh, it's not just legal, pure legal either. Like there's legal operations, which is, you know, aligning legal services with enterprise goals and, you know, translating from legal to English and business to legal and, and getting everybody on the same page and aligned together. There's legal operations, there's the legal department, there's the business function, and they all need to be working hand in glove for everything to be optimal. Did you, when you went to law school and you were thinking about being a lawyer, I guess before then, what did you think you were going to be doing as a lawyer versus what you're doing now? I thought I was going to be positioned after graduating law school to get uh, maybe an associate general counsel job or assistant general counsel job at a company and work my way up. And ho- hopefully, you know, if I if I was really good at what I did and I learned a lot and I provided a lot of value to my employer to someday become general counsel or chief legal officer for a company, hopefully a, a relatively you know, medium to large size company and and be really successful. I mean, you always hope for the best, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's hard not to be ambitious. It's hard for someone like me not to be ambitious. And I used to jokingly say that law schools where narcissists go to become sociopaths. So (laughs) for lawyers, it's really hard not to be ambitious, but uh, that's probably unfair and a bit cynical to to lawyers. I think, you know, very few of them are uh, sociopaths and, and probably fewer than you think are narcissists. So, uh, but you know, it's still funny. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'd say a lot of, a lot of lawyers are ambitious, you know, they want to win, but that a lot of that ambition isn't just for themselves. It's, it's because they actually go to law school to make a dent in the universe. They want to leave a mark. They want some kind of legacy. They want to serve their clients. And, and Mm -hmm. you, you would be surprised. Like a lot of people think of lawyers as sort of sharks in suits, money grubbing, um, you know, win, winning obsessed people. And really what they're obsessed with at, at a core level is justice for their clients. Like you can't be a successful lawyer and not be obsessed with justice. Like you, that, that has to be your driving force because any other motivation um, will burn you out very quickly. And I'd say mm-hmm. usually five to seven years burnout if you're not obsessed with, with justice and, and good outcomes for your clients. For me, that manifests as, uh, you know, wanting to see my clients outgrow me, wanting to see my clients grow their, their profitability, their revenues, their market share to the point where they don't have, uh, you know, an outsourced solution. Now they have in-house counsel, and um, so I started building profit from legal to both to help them get to that point and then to optimize their relationship with their in-house counsel when, when they have it. But profit from legal is great as a foundation. You know, even if a, a client isn't quite there yet, um, it's a good foundation for, for laying down the legal operations systems and processes that need to be in place for them to get the most out of 
counsel when they hire an outside general counsel attorney to advise them and provide legal services. It's also great to optimize a relationship with outside general counsel if they already have it or in ha- their in-house legal department because uh, Profit From Legal really is it's, it's uh, legal operations install, as mm-hmm. it were. Um, and so we lay down all those systems and processes. You teach them about uh, key performance indicators and then show them and work with them to uh, implement those key performance indicator reporting processes in their business so that they can get the most out of the legal counsel. For me, that means improved access to the legal support they need. It's it's unjust, it's unfair for big companies to have legal support and the little guys mm-hmm. to go without. And f- I think 50% of consumers, U.S. consumers, have a significant legal event every year and 80% of them go without a, a lawyer. Something like 30% of small businesses that have a significant legal event don't hire a lawyer. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a $79 billion problem. And for me, that means the legal industry is leaving almost $80 billion on the table every year. And I think, you know, everyone has adequate incentives. Lawyers have adequate incentives. Small businesses have adequate incentives to solve that problem. But nobody's really, nobody wants to have a conversation about value-based fees mm-hmm. and, reach, you know, communicating return on investment on legal services to the client. Instead, people are entrenched in and attached to this antiquated, archaic business model of trading time for dollars, the billable hour. And and I hate the billable hour. I think it's a cancer because you're not going to, if you're a small business owner, you're not going to call your lawyer Mm -hmm. if they're, if it's, uh, you know, the average hourly rate's almost $300 an hour. And so if it's almost $60 for a 12 minute phone call, you're not going to call that lawyer unless your hair's on fire. But if the lawyer is providing unlimited remote legal consultation service on a subscription basis, why wouldn't you call them? You're paying for the subscription fee. Use it as much as you need to. It's not going to cost you any different. So I think there's a better business model for basic legal services for small businesses. And, um, you know, we're out there pioneering what that looks like and have been since 2013. Um, You know, we were doing virtual practice before COVID. I mean, we, we've been doing virtual practice since effectively 2014. So um, we've been out in front of the trend for, for years. Um, and now we're, we're doing, you know, uh, legal profitability development for small businesses. And this is happening, by the way, this is happening for big businesses already. Like it's not, we're not reinventing the wheel. This is something that exists. It's just not something that exists for small businesses, small to medium businesses. If you're in that 10 million to $50 million range, this is all news to you. But if you're in a a much bigger business, 50 million, a hundred million or more in, in revenue, um, this is kind of, it's not quite old hat, but I'd say north of 80% of, of businesses of that size already have legal operations that's part of their legal department and all of that. It's the little guys that get left out, and that's where justice isn't being served for me. I want to see the little guys have the same uh, support and opportunities that the big companies have. Mm-hmm. Was there a shift for you? Like, Did you start out as a general counsel or assistant counsel somewhere and then move on from that or did you just kind of over time change your mind about who you wanted to help well when i when i was second year in law school i clerked for an attorney like you do Mm -hmm. um and he was general counsel for two regional banks and when i when i graduated I, i graduated a semester early from law school i took a bunch of summer classes and 
I, uh, you know, just try to get out as fast as I could, get mm-hmm. to practice as, co- as soon as I could. And so um, whenever I graduated, I, pa- I took the bar in February. I graduated December, took the bar in February, got my results in April. Um, I had passed, and the lawyer I had clerked with said, okay, you can come and work with me as an associate in my practice, you know, where he was doing some like real estate, creditor's rights and bankruptcy, some, you know, general counsel work for the banks and that sort of thing. You can work for me in my practice or you can rent some space for me in my building. He had an office available for rent. And, uh, you know, I had wanted to be an entrepreneur for a long time. I'd wanted to be my own boss. You know, I didn't want to be beholden to somebody else. And I remember asking him, so if there's money in the trust account from a settlement and the client needs a check and you're on vacation, will the client have to wait or will I have the authority to write them a check? Mm-hmm. And he said, no, you'll have to wait. You're not going to have signing authority on the trust account because I'm responsible for that and so on. And I said, well, I respect that. And if I were in your position, I'd probably feel the same way. But I don't want my client to have to wait. I don't want to I don't want to have that issue, you know, even though it may be mm-hmm. unlikely or whatever, you know, you can downplay it however you want. But for me, I was really thinking already at that point about the um, the impact on the client of having to wait for approval from higher up and how that would put me in the middle. And I just, I just thought, well, you know, I'll just rent some space from him. The rent was cheap. He's a great guy. Love him to death. He's, he's just a really great person um, and a good lawyer. And I, I appreciated the job offer, but ultimately I took option two. I just hung my shingle out and immediately regretted it. (laughs) Immediately was like, this was a terrible idea. I think my first year in practice, I made something like $12,000. I mean, my wife was working. She, when I was in law school, she worked at the university where the law school was. And Mm -hmm. um, she worked for the divinity school that was on campus there and got her, she got a tuition benefit. So she got her MBA at the same time that I got my JD and we graduated at the same time. And I'm just super proud of her. She's, she's a rock star. And uh, so thankfully she got a good job uh, as well. And so we were able to, to make it while I was building my practice. But that first year was really brutal. And I was really not just miserable because I wasn't making very much money and I, you know, because I didn't have a client base. I was just mm-hmm. having to build it all from, from scratch, from square one, like literally zero to one, like bootstrapping with no startup capital, no marketing budget, no nothing, no help, no support. It was just me and a computer in a room. Doing my be- and a suit, doing my best, right? Like I got on the list um, for court-appointed cases, and so mm-hmm. I was taking court-appointed cases. So people who said I can't afford a lawyer, even if they could afford a lawyer, they said they couldn't, and then the court system would appoint them to me, and the state would pay me a paltry sum to to defend them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was taking stuff like that, guardian ad litem cases. Um, solicitor ad litem cases where, you know, you're appointed to represent someone who's, you know, uh, been accused of uh, abusing children or something like Mm. that. uh, That was just brutal. You know, like I I got off that list as quickly as I could because uh, Mm -hmm. there were just some really rough, rough things. You know, I saw some rough stuff. And uh, it was not at all what I went to law school for. I took in law school. I took all the business law courses. I didn't take mm-hmm. family law. I didn't take environmental law. I didn't take, you know, the the kinds of courses that people take to boost their GPA so that they're in the top twenty percent of the class and get recruited by a big law firm. Instead, yeah. I took things like securities regulation and corporate finance and uniform commercial code. And I took all of that that I could so that I would have all the business law knowledge that I could cram into my brain, so I would mm-hmm. be useful 
to an employer in the future. That was what I was out to do. And instead I ended up, you know, like defending a meth cook in, in uh, general sessions court, court of first impression, mm. just stuff that wasn't at all what I wanted to do and had no interest in. And I was miserable, but I had a few clients, business, small business clients who brought matters through, you know, across my desk and I would ask them, why didn't you just hire a lawyer in the first place? Like you're yeah. now in this lawsuit for several thousand dollars, but you could have prevented this for a couple hundred bucks. And they go say, what? Come again? What? And I'd say, yeah, you know, it's really cheap to prevent this kind of thing from happening. But the trick is you have to call the lawyer before you have the lawsuit. I mean, you mm-hmm. need to talk to someone in advance and everybody has risks but the difference between a risk and a problem is having the right lawyer there in advance. Mm-hmm. And you've got to put that in place. And they're like, wow, it's just prohibitively expensive. And I'd say, well, would you pay you know, $400 a month to just have someone that you could talk to, unlimited, no limits, you know, all your legal research would be included, all of your uh, you know, legal, remote legal consultation would be included, any de minimis services, anything that it's like 20 minutes or less to get taken care of, that's automatically included. Would you pay like $400 a month for that? No. Hell yeah, I'd pay, you know, five, six hundred, seven hundred dollars a month for that would be well worth it, you know, just mm-hmm. for the peace of mind and the unlimited service. And uh, I'm like, I'll be your Huckleberry, you know, we can do that. Huh. Um, so that the idea for a subscription based outside general counsel service for very small businesses was born out of that experience of uh, asking clients, well, what would you want your relationship with your lawyer to look like? And, and, you know, what would be the right price point? There was a lot of trial and error to in developing what we now call our legal lifeline service. Um, and then we spent a couple of years developing Signet outside general counsel, which is a, a scalable, um, very robust outside general counsel solution. And the, the scope of the work and the scale of the, the cost, the fee, scales with the size of the business. And it's driven, it's a value, it's a true value based fee uh, that's driven by statistical data on what businesses actually spend on legal services because we believe everything is worth what its purchaser will pay for it. So we use actual data on that to, to fuel the algorithm um, and the value-based fee. I didn't always want to do this. I did always want to be my own boss, but it was just sort of, um, you could say luck, but it's, you know, luck is really just a function of preparation and opportunity. Those are the two elements of luck. It's when preparation meets opportunity. I had been somewhat prepared in some ways. And then I had the opportunity to see the need for this in a very small business context. And so what I wanted to do for one big company, I now do for a lot of little companies Mm -hmm. uh, or several, I shouldn't say a lot, but several little companies. Uh, We actually have a a soft cap. It's not a hard and fast rule, but our target uh, client to attorney ratio is 10 to one. So Mm -hmm. for every attorney would, you know, 10 clients, if it gets more than that, there needs to be a good reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think it's just cool that, first of all, I think just in a way, I mean, it sounds really rough, but you had the opportunity to see like, I don't want to do that. Yeah. And you went and did it and knew you didn't want to. I actually was, I had planned to go to law school like since I was 10, right? That was what I was going to do. Be a lawyer and be president was the next thing, but that's not going to happen. Um, I don't want people leaking whatever I have on the internet. And so... Um, <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, but uh, I actually interned at the DA's office local in my hometown um, in between my freshman and sophomore year of college, and they didn't want me there. 
actually the deputy DA, he was like, thought I was ridiculous. I would show up. I went to the office with my resume and I got dressed up. I said, oh, I'd like to be an intern here. I didn't know what I was doing. And he's like, well, you're not a law student. Like, no, you're not. You can't do that. You know, come back in a few years. And I said, okay, fine. So then I just started hanging out in the courtroom. So ridiculous. Like this 19-year-old kid. And I sat there every day and he would see me and I'd say hi to him. And then finally he came at the end of the week. because what are you doing? I said, well, I can still study. Like, I can still learn just by sitting here. So I'll just be here. And he's like, all right, just come in. And it ended up being this awesome experience. I got to do what all the law students were doing because cool. I was willing to do it. Yeah. yeah. But what happened was, was I thought I wanted to be a DA because I thought I'm going to make sure that the bad guys go away. Well, then you start to find things out like it's not that black and white Yeah. at all. And you have the experience where, like, for example, and you'll understand this because of stuff you had to do. I couldn't be in the courtroom one day. There were no women allowed because of the guy that they brought in. It was pretty scary. Yeah. You know, no women in the courtroom. And then one time near the end of it, two two guys I went to high school with and to junior high with were being indicted for murder one. And that impacted me. I looked at them and I was Cause like, you I knew, knew them. these guys. You'd been in school them. with them. Yeah. I knew them. I even wow. knew why. Yeah. There was this, these gangs in our town. Yeah. And I knew whose death they were avenging. Yeah, And I don't agree with murder at all, just right. to be clear to anyone listening. But I knew all of it. And it mm. just wasn't as simple anymore. No. And then I just changed what I wanted to do, um, which I'm still not doing. But yeah, so I get like just how those experiences change you and you working with certain people. And especially if you're working with people like you had to. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and I think it's just good, though, that you had that opportunity to at least see so you knew. And then, well, it's funny, too, because my dad yeah. uh, practiced law for almost 20 years, 19 years, mm-hmm. and uh, he did criminal defense, medical malpractice, and personal mm-hmm. injury. So I grew up uh, you know, with, with my dad, who had a very successful practice having these kinds of cases, and I always kind of looked at – it's probably awful to say this, you know, the, the voice of white, white male privilege or whatever, if you want to call it that. Um, but I always kind of grew up looking down a little bit on some mm-hmm. of the especially criminal defense clients i thought that's a lower class of people it's people who have no impulse control and they had no self-control and so you know I, I was kind of judgy towards them and you know of course i don't think people do bad things or criminal things necessarily because they want to be bad some some people do mm-hmm. and some people have no remorse no conscience and they're you know they've got some sort of something wrong with their mind their psychology um but then I think most people who end up on the wrong side of the law are driven to it by complex forces, both internal and external. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not it's not cut and dried, as you say. And it's funny because this plays out uh, sometimes over decades. And my dad, um, his, he, his father, was our district attorney in our hometown for 16 mm. years. He served two terms as district attorney. And uh, it's funny because he spent like – almost 20 years putting away the quote-unquote bad guys. Mm -hmm. And then when he went into private practice, he started doing criminal defense work. Wow. And he started defending some of the people he had put away before. And he was like, you know, (laughs) some of these guys, they're not not that bad. Like, they're just, you know. Like, he he had a completely different view of them and a different experience of them when he got into private practice as a criminal defense lawyer than he had putting them away. Uh, your perspective really does change and the law requires, if you want to be a really good lawyer, it requires you to t- entertain 
two conflicting thoughts in your mind at the same time. We were always taught in law school, argue yes, argue no. Be able to understand the other side's point of view. Know what their argument is going to be because you can't beat their argument if you don't understand their argument from their perspective. You have to see it from their point of view. It requires a high degree of what some people would call empathy. Um, And it probably is really pure empathy, honestly, understanding someone else's point of view, being able to argue in their shoes. But... um, you know, for me, empathy is an exercise in imagination. It's how I, from my perspective, imagine someone else feels. But I can never really put myself in their shoes. So for yeah. me, it always feels empathy always feels a bit disingenuous. I really like what Paul Bloom talked about in his book Rational Compassion. How even when you can't see things from the other person's perspective, even if you can't really understand how a person could get to a point where they would do something horrible. Um, mm-hmm. You still have compassion for them because at bottom, even if they're a bad person, they're a person. They're mm-hmm. a human being and, and they have intrinsic value as a human. And so you should love them in a general way, you know, just respect for all life and that kind of a love and show compassion and mercy to them and, and hope that if they've done something horrible, they get the psychological help they need. Because clearly there's, like you pointed out, you know, it's things aren't cut and dried. It's not, it's not just that they're good people and bad people. It's that, um, you know, even good people can be driven to do horrible things or can be mm-hmm. beaten down over the course of their whole life through abuse and external forces that shape them into what we might consider to be a monster if we didn't realize that there's probably a person in there being tortured by themselves and everything that they've been through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I, yeah, it's just it's an interesting thing. And I think so when I think of lawyers, a lot of the time, I actually still have this view of like the people I worked with when I was a kid. You yeah, know, got the chance to meet and and all that. So, is there once you were like now you're doing what you want to do or a version of it? You're it's like you wanted to help people and you wanted to be a counsel for businesses. Now you are just in a different yeah. way. In a different um, way, yeah, yeah. Which is kind of the cool thing. I mean, I think a lot of times we'll have an idea of what we want to do, but it'll show up in a different way mm-hmm. if you, if we take advantage of that or if we go ahead and say yeah this kind of actually is what i wanted to do but just not how i envisioned it i suppose right Mm -hmm. like you're not sitting in a boardroom of some fortune five or something and thank god right thank god that i didn't end up where i wanted where i thought i wanted to be because if i had i would have to deal with a lot of a lot of stuff right now that i would have that i would have zero tolerance for and zero patience for like uh there are some some just basic denials of reality that a lot of corporate culture engages in. And um, I'm just like, you know, you're basically looking at the facts and denying that that's, that that's a thing. And I, I can't, I can't deal, I can't deal with people being irrational. Um, Like I can't accept it. I can acknowledge it and I can have compassion for those people and I can hope that they'll change and I'll try to persuade them. But like if I was subject to their authority and they said, this is our corporate policy, we're going to, we're going to go in this direction and I disagreed with it. I would be one of those people that would have to resign in protest. Like mm-hmm. I would be like St. Thomas More. I'd say I die the king's good servant, but God's first, you know, just put my principles ahead of even my own career. And right now I'm responsible for a beautiful little boy and, and his life. And, you know, I'm, um, his mother, you know, my wife, you know, I, I've got a family that I, that I'm responsible for. And so I think for me, the right answer is, to be um, able to have the freedom to accept working with with people who are willing to accept me, mm-hmm. and say no to 
um, things that you know where the, where I know there's going to be so much conflict with that person that that they're 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 not going to like me, they're not going to accept my worldview, or they're you know they they need me to be woke and I'm not woke or whatever, and so we just kind of can't work together. Like it's funny because um, these are challenges that I never really thought we would have at this point in American life. I really thought that we were trending towards more unity and inclusiveness, uh, concern for others, consideration, tolerance, and not acceptance of other people's ideology in the sense that I, I am forced to agree with you, but acceptance of the fact that even if I disagree with you, we can still love each other and care about each other. I thought that was where we were going in society, like as a kid in the in the late 90s. You know, when I was graduating college in year 2000, I thought that's where things were headed. And over the last 20 years, uh, we've not been headed in that direction. We've been headed 180 degrees in the other direction towards, you know, less acceptance of others, less consideration for others, more um, division and sort of like being in these echo chambers where we don't listen to the other side. And that I think that's deeply troubling for me and for a lot of people. And, you know, I'm the kind of person that even if I disagree with you, I love you as a human being and I I want good things for you in your life and Mm -hmm. I I will still help you out in business. But I'm learning that things are not that way. And as we see cancel culture um, wreaking havoc in corporate America, um, I'm really glad that I didn't end up there because I'm concerned that I would be one of the people that would be canceled. Not because I'm a bad person, but because I just am not going to um, say that things are true when I don't believe they are. You know, it's like that's what's required now. And I think that's terrible. Yeah. I mean, I guess it depends on what's being canceled. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. that's the thing. Like, well, like the guy themselves, like some okay, people do well, cancel like, themselves and you they know, deserve you make it. that choice. Like, yeah. or you just make a choice and then that's the choice you made. Like, that's it. You made a choice to like last week. Let's just take an example. Like Robert Aaron Long, the monster, like horrible person, right? Who in Georgia shot up a bunch of um, massage therapy businesses. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he went in there and shot that up. Well, immediately when he did that, Stop Asian Hate started was like trending all over Twitter and white supremacy was trending on Twitter. And they were basically saying that because this white guy shot up a bunch of Asian Uh, massage therapy places that he was a racist you know mass murdering monster well it turns out that he was the son of a a fundamentalist evangelical protestant minister um and he was raised very religious and he had had a problem with he had had problems with sexual addiction and that sort of thing and he had really struggled with that and he had frequent some frequented some of those establishments that weren't entirely doing what they were supposed to be doing right like they were they weren't just massage places so he was going there and uh he saw those as sources of temptation to what he perceived to be sin and so he saw them as like dens of iniquity and so his violent uh atrocious behavior had nothing to do with racism. It had everything to do with self-hatred, which is a deep-seated psychological problem, um, with his religious upbringing, with his perception of them as, you know, occasions to, you know, near occasions of sin, you know, so he saw them as like temptations that he needed to eliminate. There's a psychological, pathological problem there. Like that's mental illness. And uh, he needed compassion and he needed treatment he needed to he needed to seek help 
But because he didn't get the help that he needed, he did something horrible. But it had nothing to do with white supremacy. It had nothing to do with racism of any kind. It had everything to do with the fact that he was a broken person who hated himself. And, you know, this was but, – but it didn't stop the woke mob on Twitter from jumping to conclusions and making it about racism when it wasn't about racism. And so, you know, anytime a person speaks out and says, hey, you know, this particular instance wasn't really about racism, they're like, you know, the, the woke mob responds, well, why are you defending racism? It's like, we're not defending racism, we're defending reason and trying to say, look, yes, white supremacy is bad, but it's not relevant to this particular crime. This was not, this was a, an atrocity, but it wasn't a hate crime as you're, you know, as we define hate crime. It wasn't what, that's not what hate crime means. Um, and yeah, he may have hated the people he killed, but not based, not based on their race, but based on what he perceived as, you know, sinful behavior or whatever. And, and that's part of his religious shit that he had going on. It wasn't like, you know, a, a racist motivation. So it's very difficult. Like I have friends who I would talk about these things privately with, and they'd say, well, because of where I work, I would never post on Twitter about that. I would never render an opinion, even in defense of sanity, even in defense of, hey, we need to make sure that when we're condemning racist attacks, that those attacks really are racist. Because when we condemn racism when racism isn't the underlying motivation it actually dilutes the argument it dilutes the potency of the argument against racism which is a good and value valuable thing we want to fight racism but we can't do it effectively if we're diluting it by saying that's racist when things aren't really racist like we need to be clear in our arguments and and this is i guess part of my legal training of issue spotting and like sticking to the facts and using logic and good sound argument you know it's it's about supporting the right things for the right reason the right way and in business i do the same thing it's you know a focus on profitability that happens when you get everything else right profits what happens when you get everything else right and that's true when it comes to pecuniary profit in your business, but it's also true in the sense that profit is something that's beneficial. If something is profitable for you, it's generally beneficial. And the things that are most beneficial in life and in society are the things that, that accrue to us when we get all these other things right, when we get the arguments right, when we have good critical thinking skills, when we have you know the right virtuous attitudes towards other people and all that stuff. Yeah, so I do need to address something because I don't want people to listen to this and think that I at all condone the whole use of woke mob or anything like that. Oh, yeah. So I need to address that. Oh, the term terminology, yeah, sure. Well, I just need to address all of it really quick, So, and I will. So the whole thing is it appeared to be a crime against Asian people at first. That's what it appeared to be. Asian women are often seen in this light of being treated in a certain way in society especially by men especially sexually so that and it, and these can be you know body workers they can be sex workers mm-hmm. they can be whatever you know they're not advertising obviously that's what it's about but someone's paying someone for something that's what's right. going on yeah there are no real protections for sex workers at all because a lot of people don't want to acknowledge that that industry exists and right. it does and so in the same way there aren't really danger. any legal protections for like drug dealers because that that activity is also illegal so we don't really like but, tend to legally protect things that are illegal but there's an in like there are people that seek these services sure right so yeah 
it appeared to be a crime against Asian people. Also, there have been an increase in hate crimes against Asian people. They're not covered by the media in the same way crimes against other races are. That's true. There's a silence around it. So what it did was, I think, it woke, not in the same sense, people up to this happening. Mm-hmm. Because then it was like all of a sudden, oh, this has happened, this has happened. I have a friend whose sister was kicked on the New York subway about six months ago. Why? She's Asian. That's why. And that's terrible. Right? And it's It should terrible. never happen. But that you should know never, what? You'll never, happen. never hear about it because for some reason, like the Asian community is not treated in the same way as other communities of other races are yeah. as far as highlighting their things. So I think what happened was, yeah, he says... It wasn't a race thing. Fine. He says he's a sex addict and that he decided to go shoot people and kill them and kill... Like, that one lady had two, has two teenage kids. That yeah, there's no never any now. excuse for any of that kind of stuff, but there's also no, not an excuse for the rush to judgment, and that's what I condemn, is the rush to judgment without all the facts. Right, and that happens, and that's the nature of the media now and stuff. So I can acknowledge that, yes, yeah, he that's a didn't problem. specifically do a crime against... People, they just happen to all be the same. That yeah. happens to be who was working there. Yeah. But, you know, and I agree that, like, there is there is a danger. And I'm not 100%, like, I'm not a cancel culture person because I think, first of all, people can say things, like, maybe 10 years ago, they could have said something that in the in society 10 years ago was accepted. Right. Okay to say, and there's even characters on TV shows, and like on Two Broke Girls, there's this Asian character. You wouldn't treat a character who's Asian like that now because we've evolved, or some of us have. I'd Cult- say some culturally have evolved. evolved. Yeah, some people have. <coughs> right. Some people are still and kind of the Archie bunkers, right? But they're not. And they're getting canceled. They're I mean, getting canceled. Yeah. And they should like people who still use the N word. It's yeah. like there, there is no question. Anyone who's 30 years old, for example, we're older than that. Yeah. Anyone who's 30 years old. It's and white, put it that way. It has never been acceptable in their entire lifetime. Never in their whole life, right? In their whole life, there's never. Now, someone who's eighty, now it was never okay, like in the sense that it was okay, but it was something that actually was a word that they grew up with, and at some point they didn't evolve past it. My grandmother would say it was tacky. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was tacky, but it's not wrong. It was just sort of like, uh, don't don't be. Don't be vulgar. Yeah. Don't be crude. It was like a vulgar thing to use the N-word. But there's a difference between vulgarity or, you know, just being rude and being yeah. like a member of the clan is the way it's treated now. Uh, right. It's just like a ridiculous. And, yeah. Yeah. So I agree with that. But it's just hard because I think I know why the reaction happened. And I think then it was this. It's kind of like what's just what's been happening. There's these pressure points that are being hit that are exploding things, right? And that's the hard part. And I think Do you think that's intentional? Do you think that that people are being intentionally manipulated by social media algorithms and the media to to be um whipped into a frenzy for the purpose of, because the more hype there is, the more media, you know, frenzy there is, the more all of this there is on social media, the more the advertising companies make and the social media company, the more money they make, like the more yeah. attention you have, the more you're, you're sucked into Twitter or you're sucked into Facebook or Instagram or whatever over, you know, you're, you're following all these hashtags and you're, you've got a high level of yeah. engagement. You're seeing more ad revenue. And if you're not, 
buying it and you're not selling it, guess what? You're the product being sold. Do you think that this is intentional that that the the uh, tools that are being used are actually using us? Oh, for sure. And I think like a good example of just well, I think people have good intentions, right? Like people, not I'm not saying companies. I'm saying sure, people. Yeah, I think so. Like if I I didn't change my profile picture, but I could have. I, a lot of people change their profile picture to have some circle around it that says like stop right. hate in whatever yeah. situation it is. Yeah. There was that whole black square thing last year. Yeah. That well, you know what? The <laughs> the black community, from what I understand, and the black and I can't speak for the black community, but I can say what I've read, and mm. the Black Lives Matter people didn't want everyone changing their profile to a black square. What happened was their hashtag got polluted by everybody. And that was the intention was, yeah, because the intention was that the music industry, the black entertainers were going to do that. Yeah. And then it ends up being everybody. And so I think the intentions of everybody was good. It was to show support. But it's a matter of, to me, asking the people what support, how can I serve? How can I help you? you? Yeah, how can I be an ally? Don't ask them, oh, tell me about the racism you've experienced, or why do you think people are racist? Don't That's ask so them cringy. That. That's so cringy. It's so, it is, but ask them, how oh. can I help? I want to be an ally. Yeah. What can I do? And you do the research. And I think what's missing, and I think the Asian population now, I mean, I I talked to one of my friends who... They probably want to say, just don't kick me on the subway, you know? Like, just let well, me yeah, live my awful. life unmolested. Yeah, or don't hit old people. And now old people are being escorted, like in San Francisco... I'm pretty sure a guy started a community of people who escort old people on their walk just so they're not attacked. I mean, which is that's good. real and that's real stuff that's happening. And the, you know what? And, that's been happening yeah. for years, though. Like when I was in law school, yes. I, I wrote a paper on and studied uh, the trend of in the time. It was like circa 2009, 2010. There was this trend for flash mob violence and the media mm-hmm. did a horrible job of reporting on it because it didn't fit the their narrative. They did not mm-hmm. want during the last years of the Obama administration, they did not want it reported that well I guess it was the middle of the middle of the Obama administration it was 2009 2010. They didn't want it reported that largely uh, minority youths um, were engaging in these flash mobs where they would run up and they would play the knockout game. They'll just run up on an unsuspecting person, punch them in the back of the head, try to knock them out in one hit. And they were doing things like all converging uh, on like a convenience store and just looting it in 30 seconds and then out. And they were organizing this through social media. They were organizing it through um, different social media platforms. And they were just like, okay, we're going to hit this place. We're all going to show up like a Macy's. And, And it was all over security cam footage. There was no question about which demographic groups were participating. Like that was all just a matter of security cam footage, but the media quietly suppressed it. They stopped reporting the stories. They wouldn't report on the ethnicity of the people involved. And then they stopped showing the security cam footage. They started just going to text-based reports of urban youths engaging in these kinds of things, if they reported it at all. Um, And there was a website that was tracking all of these things and like had all the statistical data and that got canceled. Um, It was just like, the things that don't fit the narrative don't get reported, just like you're talking about the stop Asian Asian hate. It does the media doesn't report on it in the same way because it doesn't fit the narrative. And my issue is not with my issue number one is with hating anybody because of who they are, no matter what. Full stop. 
It's, you know, if you hate anyone because of inherent characteristics or, or inborn traits, that makes you a bad person. You need to stop that and, you know, reexamine your life. Um, so, and certainly if you would allow that to motivate you to any kind of discrimination or God forbid violence, then that's just horrible. And I would just uniformly condemn any of that kind of behavior, regardless of who's doing it or who's on the receiving end of that kind of awfulness. Um, but the problem that I have is with the way the media spins it, the way the media reports Mm -hmm. on it or chooses not to report on it, as the case may be, they pick winners and losers in the culture war and in the social game. And really the media has more power to do that than even the government or private citizens or anybody. And we need to hold journalism accountable and we need objectivity and transparency in journalism. And that's not something that we have, even with social media, because the social media companies, you can say, oh, well, everyone's a journalist now because we all have cell phones and Twitter. But the Twitter algorithms, the social media algorithms are now doing what establishment journos have done for a long time, which is pick the narrative. And I think that that's horrible because it does everyone a grave disservice. Mm-hmm. You can't make informed decisions or, you know, cultural values decisions or whatever when you're when the media that's being fed to you and the narrative and the information being fed to you is so skewed by these companies. Well, yeah, we all choose our echo chamber at this point. Right. Yeah, <laughs> except for me because I'm I'm just sort of like opting out. Like I've I've kind of just uh, like I'll go into Facebook now. You can go into the Facebook ad settings, and I've started encouraging friends to do this. Go into the Facebook ad settings and just start purging everything. Just t- tell Facebook, no, you can't track me. You can't do any of these things. Just set it to the very most restrictive thing. No, I don't want targeted ads. Hi- start hiding all the advertisers that they've showed shown you. And anytime mm-hmm. you see an ad, hide it and ban it. So I never want to see ads from this person again. And not on any kind of per- principle, just any kind of ad. Yeah, any like, ad. Yeah. Any ad, no matter what it is. F- fuck with the algorithm, excuse my language, but mess with their algorithm and just go through there and, and start undermining the algorithms everywhere. Like as an act of protest, I think everybody should mm-hmm. do it on every – and then and also pick a platform and stick with it. Don't be on every platform. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. It's probably the only place I have any meaningful engagement outside of a couple of private Facebook groups. Mm-hmm. I'm on Facebook because my grandmother's on Facebook and I don't want her to miss out on my, my kid's life, right? I mean, she, <laughs> that's her window on the world. And so I, I'm there. I'm basically on Facebook because Boomer plus family members are, you know, Boomer and older family members are on Facebook yeah. and I, it's a good place to share pictures. But we largely do that in a private Facebook groups. My engagement outside of that is is almost none. Um, these days. And I just encourage people to, to not use those platforms as especially after watching the social dilemma, right? Like if you've seen that now you ought to be aware you're being used. And I think a lot of the sort of culture wars that we're engaging in are, it's not because people are like bad people or they disagree or whatever. It's because they're being manipulated. And mm-hmm. I just don't want people to be pawns in a, in a game that really has nothing to do with their best interests. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I understand, and um, we did have a tangent, but that's fine. That's well, this is more than work. <laughs> it's more than work. Well, we're not yeah, just here but... to talk about work. We're here to talk about <laughs> life, right? And like, I mean, yeah, it is yeah. activism. It is. It is work. It is. I mean, we've had some fun too, and uh, so it's great to be able to talk about these things. And I know you and I probably ideolo- ideologically don't necessarily see eye to eye about everything, 
but mm-hmm. I hear you, I see you, I respect your opinion, and I feel like you do the same for me. And this is a great example of people who may not 100% agree with each other still being able to have a civil conversation. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think I, I think that, well, and I think one thing that is true also is that not everybody who identifies as like super liberal is 100% on board of just making sure nobody has twitter ever again or right like yeah that, right yeah that's like a good because i i don't i don't think it's the right way to go i don't it's kind of like when you're a kid and you do something and you get punished for it at some point you have to like be able to show your parents i'm not going to do that again right and i understand why it's not okay i understand why i shouldn't do that and you and i don't and like if you can't do that you know like Sarah Silverman's a comedian who she did blackface before. She's made a lot of really horrible jokes. She's apologized. There's and she said I learned from it and I'm not going to do this again and I understand why it was wrong and it was wrong then but I did it and I understand why it's wrong and I'm not going to do it. And I'm sorry. And I don't and it's like sh- everyone knows that. Yeah. Everyone accepts that that's the truth. And that's her truth, and she's demonstrating that. So, should she be taken off of everything? And well, not I, I think anymore? even if she didn't apologize, and this is this is where I'm going to get probably some flack from some people, but I think even if she didn't apologize, she shouldn't be canceled. I think that personal responsibility for the content you consume is on the consumer, not the producer. And this is the great thing about free market capitalism. You can produce a lot of horrible things in a free market capitalist system, but you will fail if if everyone chooses not to consume them, if they mm-hmm. won't buy it from you. If there's not a market for the awfulness that you're putting out there, then you have no incentive to continue producing it. It's not Sarah Silverman or people who make unpalatable jokes or bad jokes or racist jokes or whatever. It's not the producer's fault. They're supplying demand. The, the fault lies with consumers who consume that, who choose to consume that. They know that it's wrong. You know that it's wrong to laugh at jokes that are hateful or that to, to consume media that's hateful or whatever. It's, it's on the consumer. The responsibility is on the consumer. We all need to take personal responsibility. And look, if something causes your, you to feel a twinge of guilt in your conscience – then don't consume that content in the future. Don't blame the person who produced the content. You chose to consume it. There needs to be personal responsibility for consumers. And when there's no longer a market for hateful stuff, it won't be produced anymore because no one will have an incentive to produce it. And you can say, well, there will always be people who produce that and always people who want to consume it. Well, if that's the case, then you need to just separate yourself from that. If you can't, I mean, you just need to separate yourself from that and say, that's not part of who I am. That's not part of my values. For for me, you can do what you want, but for me, I'm going to do the right thing. Good for you. And there's no reason to try to crush and silence and cancel and eliminate um, every kind of speech we disagree with. And I think that's what you're saying too. Is like I disagree with cancel culture generally, but that's the that's the problem. And and also socially forcing people or coercing them or pressuring them to change beyond just opting out, I think is 
is uh, too much. Like for me, that's well, a, that, that's that a bridge too far. Cancel culture, right? If consumers yeah. don't consume something anymore, they, they cancel the person. Well, it's one thing for Visa to say we're not going to process your credit cards anymore. It's another thing for you know for Amazon to say we're not going to give you a platform to host your website. Like we're we're going to commercially refuse to do business with yeah. you. That's one thing. It's a different thing for consumers to say I don't want to buy that. You know, I don't want to buy a ticket to this person's show because they've said things that I find offensive or immoral. You know, um, mm-hmm. like I love Dave Chappelle. I love. Um, Guys like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Seth MacFarlane, you know, I like people who are equal opportunity offenders. They're not racist. <laughs> they're just there to laugh at everything. They're, they're the, kind of yeah. like the comedian from Watchmen. You know, they see everybody and everything as kind of a joke. They laugh at themselves. They laugh at the clown world that we li- we've come to live in because it is. It's, it, the world has almost become a parody of itself. It's ridiculous and absurd because we've let it become ridiculous and absurd. And the only mm-hmm. way to get back to sanity is to let there be inappropriate jokes it's almost like Michael Scott from The Office, you know, saying there's no such thing as an appropriate joke. That's what makes it a joke. You know, it's almost like yeah. we say these things because it's the absurdity of them that makes them funny. We don't really take it seriously. We don't really mean it. And that's why it's a joke, because if we meant it, it would be mean and awful. But if you make a joke out of it, then it allows you a safe place to engage with something that is an absurdity and to start a conversation around it. It's the humor of it that sort of takes the edge off, defuses an otherwise tense situation, and lets you say, yeah, we, we joke about that, but really it is kind of a problem and maybe we should be more sensitive and address it. You know, But if you if you can't sort of laugh alongside it, then it's just depressing and, and really the only thing that happens is people just ignore it. Um, you want to get what was it? Roy Rogers. He said, if you get people laughing, you can tell them anything. And Mm -hmm. I think that humor is a great conversation starter, but humor and comedy needs to be a safe space, especially. And there needs to be sort of a, a blanket ban on banning (laughs) certain forms of, of jokes and parody and all of that, because there's just no good place to draw a clear line between what's okay and what's not okay. And so you just end up, with cancel culture. I mean, that's where it is. It started yeah. with not saying, Oh, that's not okay to joke about. Um, I'd say, you know what, put on, put on your, um, uh, your th- thicker skin, you know, you can't well, say, yeah. And if people don't like that, someone says that to them though, just don't buy a ticket to, to the too. show. That's what I feel. Yeah. 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 And if they don't like that too bad, like I've seen comics, so I do comedy and I'm new ish. And some guys make rape jokes. They think rapes funny. Well, if no one laughs in the audience, yeah, they'll stop making the jokes because they'll just either bomb. stop making the joke. Yeah, stop yeah. making the joke. Don't blame the people for not laughing. Yeah, no one thought you were funny. Yeah, it's not the audience's and fault. If, but if it, you, you know what? If the audience if the audience laughs along, you can't blame the comic. He that he's there to make people laugh. No, but it's like if you don't get booked anymore because you're the rape joke guy. Yeah, that's your problem. Be more clever. So I don't know. It's yeah. a hard thing, but I think yeah. So. I did want to talk to you a little bit about um, you do this program called um, Boots to Business. Yeah, Boots to Business. Right. Well, I, to be fair, and I should I should probably at this point I should probably say I haven't done this in a year because of COVID. Um, so they stopped. Mm-hmm. They put the program on pause in February of last okay. year, and they said that they were going to to go to virtual, like using Microsoft Teams, and then that never happened. 
Um, mm. I, it makes me really sad because Boots to Business, I did it every single month for seven years consistently. And then some in the last couple of years, I was doing it twice a month. And I feel very strongly that it's an important and necessary program, something that the SBA did in connection with the Department of Defense. It was basically a crash course in entrepreneurship for veterans as they were transitioning out of the military, and I taught the legal component of it. I think it's really important that they continue that program, But um, and I, I guess the program still is on life support somehow, some way. But um, it, you know, at Fort Campbell, at least, it just it hasn't been happening for the last year. To the best of my so knowledge, was at, so was it a nationwide program? But yeah, it's I in like 160 some odd military installations. I mean, I, on multiple occasions, I've talked to the guy who's in charge of the curriculum, um, the assistant director, and I have a good open dialogue with them that I value. I think that they're, I think their hearts are in the right place. They're trying to do the right thing. They don't want to create, you know, just like all the reasons that people stop stuff and lock down stuff because of COVID. They they're trying to protect people. Um, but I, I think that there is a way to even through COVID, even through the pandemic, deliver the program content. Yeah. Um, but you know, the government moves slowly. It adapts to change very Mm -hmm. slowly and it's not, it's not the most efficient organization ever. And I think there's room for improvement there. And I've talked to them about that and, um, they've given me, you know, the honor of being able to make suggestions to improve the curriculum. Um, so, you know, I, I value my relationship with them. I'm still serving the program in my way, but I really look forward to the time when things get back to normal and I'm back in a classroom at Fort Campbell and, you know, teaching, um, retiring, uh, veterans about the legal aspects of entrepreneurship. Yeah. I mean, that's really cool. I think that's a great way to give back to people, especially that's known to be a very hard transition. Um, I interviewed someone a few weeks back that's a veteran, but she, said it, it was different for her because she got out before Afghanistan and yeah. what people are going through since like you know she got out just yeah before that basically did she and say that she felt like a, almost a kind of survivor's guilt because she didn't serve a tour there when a lot of people mm. she knew did or I've no, heard no, people no. say things like that but, it's just like they almost were on the fence about should I should I re-enlist you know should I should I go back in because I got out before all of this and now I'm seeing people go and, you know, the psychology of it, it's, it's hard because you really are part of a, like military life is Mm -hmm. a culture, you know, it's a subculture. Yeah. No, she didn't say so much that, but just that she couldn't speak to the transition because it's, it was different for her than it was for people later, but she got a lot of her leadership. Um, I don't know if you know that book leaders eat last. Mm. Wait, I've not read it. Leaders, yeah, I think it's Leaders Eat Last, Simon Sinek, I think. Yeah, I'm familiar with the title and the author, but I haven't read the book. Yeah, and she just referred to that quite a bit. I haven't read it either, but it was just an interesting idea. And she was saying, like, the military really taught her a lot about leadership. But I think that's great that you give back in that way. And then can you talk a little bit about um, the certificate you got for servant leadership? Yeah, so uh, my hometown, Clarksville, Tennessee, is a military town. It's right next to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, where the 101st Airborne Division is, is stationed. And um, Fort Campbell's uh, an important military base. I mean, they're all important, but it, it has um, some interesting historical f- features. Um, and it's been a part of my hometown of Clarksville for a long time. So when I moved back to Middle Tennessee after law school, uh, one of the ways that um, – I got plugged in there was I got asked to, to speak at Fort Campbell and do the boots to business 
thing, the legal component of that. I, I actually got invited to speak there because I did a press release um, for Executive LP when we opened and said, new new kind of legal service provider, basically business business only preventive legal services. That's what we're about. We're not, you know, kitchen sink. Yeah, we'll do your divorce and we'll defend you in the DUI and we'll help you close on a real estate deal. And oh, yeah, by the way, we can help you start an LLC if you want to do that, which is what a lot of folks around here do. They do sort of like kitchen sink law, everything in the kitchen sink. Um, Mm. So we were very niche and there wasn't a lot of like niche legal practice and certainly not business law for small businesses. My dad told me, uh, yeah, your business model will never work. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he had practiced law for like 20 years. He'd been president of the Tennessee Trial Lawyers Association a couple of years. And he's, he told me, he's like, yeah, that's never going to work. Uh, <laughs> a few years after ELP had been working, he was like, well, I've never been, I've never been so happy to be wrong. He was like, so, you know, you're doing good work. He's very proud of me. He's my, one of my biggest champions and supporters now. But er, in the early days, people didn't think it would work. But I had put out a press release about this new kind of business thing. And the guy who was in charge of the Boots to Business program at Fort Campbell at the time called me up and he said, would you be interested in giving this talk at Fort Campbell? So I, I said, sure, absolutely. And I started doing that pro bono every month for, again, seven years. And I, after I'd put in you know, over 500 hours of pro bono service there. I just stopped counting after a while. I stopped counting after I'd taught several thousand veteran entrepreneurs through that program. But, you know, the if they had hired me at, an, at even half my hourly rate, it would have been tens of thousands of dollars to, to deliver yeah. all those services. And so one of the city councilmen put me up for this, for this award when he became aware of the work that I did. It wasn't anything that I saw it. But he put me up for this award, and and I got the certificate from the mayor's office here in Clarksville, the hometown where the military base is, for servant leadership and you know ongoing sacrifice and commitment to inclusion and diversity in the small business community. Because I've I've always I've long been a champion, always been a champion of of just treating everybody truly the same, regardless of what their you know race, color, creed, sexual orientation, religion, anything, national origin. I don't care who you are. You're a person. Everybody's a person. Mm-hmm. You're not a woman person or a transgender person or a black person or a white person or whatever. You're just a person. Everybody's a person. It's just a human. And it's all of this ideology and identity stuff to me gets in the way of just caring about another human being. Like I'm, I grew up a big fan of Star Trek. So, so I kind of have like 24th century ethos, right? Like I just, I always looked at Jean-Luc Picard, right? From Star Trek, the next generation as like the ideal father figure, just like love everyone, respect everyone, treat everyone the same, be good to people. Um, I always wanted to be data growing up, this kind of emotionless Android in search of humanity. I I thought that totally fits, you know, like I, I want to live a life that's logic, but, but values the best of what makes a human a human. And so growing up in a very nerdy way, looking at that as an ideal, like there just wasn't any room in my heart or mind for racism and that's, Mm -hmm. or, or any kind of ism at all, you know? And so it's just, uh, with that being my ethos and this being my, the, the place where I was planted, you know, in life where I grew up and everything, I mean, all of those things led me to where I am. You could say it's luck, but again, luck is just preparation meeting opportunity and this is the opportunity that i had and i was well prepared Mm -hmm. for it so i got invited to do that and ultimately it led to someone putting me up for the award and honestly because it's not something that i ever sought out i found it very humbling you know it's just like 
this is a nice acknowledgement for the work that I did. I didn't do it for the award. I've never done it for the money because I haven't been paid for it. Some of the people who attended Boots to Business, um, they did hire me. And so that was nice, you know. But again, when they hired me, that was an opportunity to serve. You know, it's just me Mm. doing what I do for the benefit of others. And I feel like people who earn a high income do so because they find ways to cost effectively solve problems for other people. You you can produce goods and services that other people value highly and so they're willing to pay you for them and that's how you that's how you earn a good living is you produce things others value highly. It's all about other yeah. people and serving them and, and supplying demand. Well and it's great you got you know, you got the certificate just for being you. I mean that's that That's is, what it comes down to. It's yeah, like and that is humbling to yeah. find like it's rare that we are ever told that we're enough or even more than enough i mean that's kind of why there's so much said there's a big industry just around self-help and stuff because we're always trying to you know so it's 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 also why awards are meaningful i guess in in an abstract way because it's just like when we see an award it's it's kind of like a beacon that says hey here's a decent bloke (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah cool do you have any like advice or mantra that you kind of look to that you'd like to share um you know i'll just paraphrase i'll paraphrase one that i that i heard that i really really like well no first of all yeah i'll say anyone because you said that you wanted to be president someday be a lawyer and be president or whatever one of my favorite Mm -hmm. authors of all time was british humorist douglas adams and he said that anyone um capable of getting themselves elected president should ipso facto be disqualified from doing the job (laughs) Um, basically anybody who wants to wield power over others should, should be thereby disqualified Mm -hmm. from having that power. Like the only people that we really ought to allow to have power, are the people who don't want it, um, Mm -hmm. that should be a credential. Like the only thing that qualifies you to wield power is to not want to wield power. George Washington was that kind of leader, the first president. And I always say it was downhill from there. Um, George Washington, when they asked him to be president of the first president of the United States, he said, have I not yet given enough for my country? He wanted to just <laughs> retire and farm, at, you know, at Mount Vernon. You know, he just wanted to be a farmer. And he was like, fine, I'll do it. And that's what made him the indispensable man. So I would say first and foremost, a, a mantra is only allow pow- only allow people in your life to wield power if they don't want to. If they see power as a burden, if they mm-hmm. see authority as a burden – those are the only people who are really going to be servant leaders, and they're really the only people you should ever trust with any kind of power. Everybody else, be super skeptical. Um, but in, as far as mantras go, it's, I'll, I'll paraphrase. Um, everyone you know is fighting some kind of battle that you don't know anything about, so be kind, always. I value wisdom more than knowledge, and so I think that's the best wisdom that I could ever give to anybody is like, look, you don't know what that other person's deal is. You don't know why they're doing what they're doing. You don't know why they're saying what they're saying. They're hurting probably. Everybody's pain is is equal and personal to them. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the rich person who has existential angst, who really feels pain because they, through the circumstances of their life, have more than they could ever need. And they know that someone on the other side of the world is start literally starving to death, that like eight children every minute starve to death or die of malnutrition. Like that's – that should be a shocking 
to anyone's statistic. And who would feel the pain of that more than someone who has far more than they could ever need? That's a very real pain. It doesn't mean that we should say, oh, poor, poor baby, you know, and sue them mm-hmm. for being rich. But but we should find ways to alleviate that their suffering and the suffering of the person who is starving to death, which is also a very real pain. One is on one side of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. One is the the bottom strata of that pyramid, if you've ever seen it represented that way, where their their pain comes from not having the means to subsist. And then on the other side of the, the pyramid, it's people who have all of those needs already met and they never have to worry about it, but they, they lack meaning and value and purpose in their life, mm-hmm. the existential value. Both kinds of pain are very real and very relevant and none is worse or better than the other. Um, and what we need to realize is that suffering is a part of every single human life and it can make us better or it can make us worse. And our job is to make it make ourselves better, let suffering make us individually better and, and make the lives of others better wherever we have the opportunity to do so. But yep. that's it. No, that's great. Yeah, because I don't like sometimes when people say, well, they're rich, like they can't be upset. It doesn't make sense. Like, yeah, if someone's rich and their mom dies. Their mom still died. Their mom you know? still it's died. Like, yeah, it's still it's yeah, still super painful. Yeah, you can't say well painful. you're rich so you can yeah, yeah no so I get it. Um, all right, so the fun five. So, what's the oldest T-shirt you have and still wear? Oh man, okay, <laughs> this is really. I don't know if this is embarrassing or cool. So I only wear it as pajamas. Like I don't wear it mm-hmm. out, you know. But I still yeah, wear yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I have this this T-shirt that has Woodstock from Peanuts on it. Yeah, um, he's got Woodstock, and he's got like an umbrella and a beach chair, and he's on the beach, and he's looking around, and it says, "Where's the chicks?" You know, because he's a he's a chick, <laughs> yeah, he's a yeah. bird, right? So yeah, where's yeah. where's the chicks? And it, it's a it's a shirt from Puerto Rico, and I think it's from my parents' honeymoon because I when I was a teenager, oh. I, I stole it from my dad. So I think they yeah. must must have gone to Puerto Rico or something. It was anyway. Somehow my dad ended up with this shirt from Puerto Rico. This shirt is so soft, you guys. Like it has been washed countless times worn countless times and it's it's virtually like translucent so i took it from my dad when i was a teenager and i still have it and now my wife my wife likes it because it's so soft yeah yeah Yeah. so uh i still i still get to wear it occasionally but i think she wears it more than i do to as pjs these (laughs) days and uh it's just a super comfy shirt but yeah it's it's ancient so it's old 70s it's gotta be like late 70s yeah i like when they're really old in this this game um personally gap actually um, produces t-shirts that are now designed yeah to feel that they're the like vintage tees and they actually have mm-hmm. that same soft feel and i bought one and it's like an old star wars t-shirt right it's made to look like the first star wars yeah. episode one like like it's got the star wars logo on there and um i bought it and my wife stole it so i bought another one and so <laughs> she takes my clothes even though they're too big for her she's just like ah it's a comfy tee she like takes my stuff and i'm like fine so i bought a second star wars shirt so now uh there's like i'm like okay is that yours or mine she's like what difference does it make they're both mediums just wear whatever shirt you want man (laughs) but it's still i know yeah yeah but still but still Um, (laughs) so a lot of people have said that like it's been like groundhog's day since the pandemic started just kind oh of yeah every day is the same their homes meet yeah. the new day same as the old day yeah yeah so if it really was what song would you have your alarm clock play every morning to wake you up so lately i've had this and, and when i say lately i mean for the last like three or four months um yeah. i've had this song 
that has been just in my Apple Music. Like it's like radio for you, the suggested whatever, and it'll come up. Or um, because for like two weeks I played it. It was like on loop mm-hmm. on my phone, like intentionally I played it forever. And now it just keeps cropping up because of the algorithm, I guess. <laughs> and I'm like, thanks for that. But it's Sean Wasabi's snack. The, you know, okay. I'm going to be the snack that smiles back. Like it's a super cute, like poppy sort of yeah, Gen yeah. Z song. And it's uh Sean Wasabi is just kind of a brilliant, brilliant artist. I love, I love his stuff because it's so, it's like pop that you don't feel guilty about. Like it's not really guilty mm-hmm. pleasure. It's actually good, but it is like music that's way too youthful for an almost 39-year-old guy to be listening to. Like it's like high school <laughs> kids are probably listening to this and um, he invented some kind of like MIDI controller. It's like a game controller that, oh, that okay. DJs can use to like make to make music. I, I I totally sound like an old fogey. I should go put on my Mr. Rogers sweater right now, like change sweaters <laughs> mid-conversation like Mr. Rogers because I'm just that old. But, uh, <laughs> no, I grew up watching Mr. Rogers, that like legit oh, yeah. on a tiny black and white eight inch, you know, rabbit ears television. So I'm that old. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So I've grown, I've been, I've been listening to that and I would have to say that would be my wake up track. Cause it's just, it'll get you out of bed. Yeah. It'll get you moving. Yeah. It'll cool. get you mo- nice. moving and, and keep you, keep you happy. Um, I love Groundhog Day <laughs> because it is a happy um, it's like a sad clown Pagliacci kind of movie. Like it's almost like laugh to keep from going crazy because you do go a little bit nuts every day being the yeah. same. And that's a great oh, yeah, question. For sure. Cool. Um, all right. Coffee or tea or neither? Uh, I thought this was going to go in a more Pan Am direction. Um, so I'm <laughs> the old uh, Pan Am. Yeah. Whiskey. No, no. Well, the, oh, how the, do you how do you like your coffee? No, the or? Pan Am thing was uh, coffee, tea, or me. Um, oh. That was the joke. Yeah, coffee, <laughs> tea, or me. Um, just, just totally. You say speaking of uh, inappropriate. Not when I'm recording. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're talking talk about the old, the no longer appropriate jokes to make. That would be the that would be among them. <laughs> Um, well, I don't know if your wife will listen. I don't know what's going to happen. She knows you know? that I'm going to make inappropriate jokes. She'll like <laughs> that, That's why she married me. She thinks I'm hilarious. Uh, so it's one of my only redeeming qualities. So because I am a lawyer after all. Uh, yeah. And I like lawyer jokes, too. Um, they're wonderful. But to beverages, I'm going to go with tea there's there's more diversity with tea i think and i'm coffee aficionados their heads just exploded like popcorn no there's dark roast and there's medium (laughs) roast and there's lattes and all the other things um there is a lot of diversity with coffee but i find more a a broader flavor profile that appeals to me and that i can actually tell the difference with tea yeah um awesome yeah so i like tea but I'm, i'm right now i'm drinking coffee yeah i well, I bought a dark roast that's just too dark. I mean, it's just... I've actually cut down on my coffee consumption the last week and a half just because I don't like the coffee, but I'm, I've am i bought the bag and I want to mm-hmm. use it. It's like I'm too cheap to just throw it away or something. Um, Can you get the Republic so, yeah. of Tea? Tea? The, the Republic of Tea is a brand, and they have a catalog, and I used to order from their their print catalog before they went digital. I'm in London. There's so much tea. Yeah, there's so much tea. Yeah. But this is this is a catalog, I guess, an American-based catalog company that's modeled after the sort of like mm-hmm. imperial. So they had like the Minister of Tea would be like the the guy <laughs> that would produce the catalog, and so it's a it has this very like intentionally British colonial yeah. era British feel to it, and I, I kind of love that. But all their teas are like they have just so much, mm-hmm. um, and so 
like they have a lot of good, really good green teas. And if I'm going to order a, like a specialty tea, I'm almost always ordering from from them. Um, but then when it comes to coffee, I like Caribou Blend. Like I love their mahogany dark mm-hmm. roast. Uh, so good. Nice. All right. Can you think of a time that you laughed so hard you cried, or just something that makes you kind of just crack up when you think of it? <laughs> Yeah, so as soon as you said that, I don't know why. I know exactly why because I was watching uh, The Big Bang Theory last night mm-hmm. on HBO Max with with my wife. We were watching through the old the old episodes, and there was the one where Sheldon went home for the holidays, and he, uh, he told his mom that he and Amy had shacked up, right? And they were living yeah. in sin, and he was like, "Where's the hellfire? Where's the judgment?" You know, like, and I it's just so relatable. Um, <laughs> even though I never shacked up, but, uh, we, we actually didn't, my wife and I didn't move in together until we got married. Wow. Yeah. So, um, that was, uh, that was a product of our mutual upbringing. Um, but yeah, anyway, he said he, in the episode, he talks about how he, uh, was feeling rebellious. So he went and got his ear pierced and then it, it does like a cutaway and he's like screaming, ah, and then he came home and his mom take it, took it and you made him take it out. And so it cuts away to him screaming again. Ah, and then Amy put alcohol on it and he screams again. Ah. And so I, I turned to my wife and I said, I've always found that hilarious. I don't know why, but any instance where someone's just screaming, like in, I guess, either pain or surprise, I don't know why I think that's funny, but I guess just the overwhelming outpouring of emotion. Yeah. And I said, I think it goes back to when I watched Home Alone 2. Oh yeah, and Marv gets electrocuted, and that scream mm-hmm. that he does—always funny, a hundred percent of the yeah. time. It's just great physical comedy, and I think that that's really funny. Anything people just being startled and they like freak out, I think <laughs> is really funny. Even though I hate it when people do it to me. Um, yeah, yeah, my little sister. So like growing up, my dad would come home. You know, he'd have his jacket over one arm, briefcase in one hand, you know, the classic kind of Americana thing. And he would trudge through the kitchen on his way from the, you know, into the house and come into the dining room. And then there was this, it wasn't a door. It was just like a big open doorway. My sister would hide on one side of it and dad would would come through and she'd hear him and she'd be like, you know, and then she would jump out and scare the bejesus out of him. And I don't know if it really scared him as much as he as, as much as it seemed to, you know, but it was, yeah, he was, yeah. he was convincing. It seemed to scare yeah. him every time. Cause she didn't do it every time. She would just do it from time to time and scare the crap out of him. And I would always <laughs> be like on the other side of the doorway at the dinner table, just kind of looking over watching everything unfold. And I always found that hilarious. So it must, it must come from childhood. You must have to be primed for that kind of, I don't know, primed for that kind of humor. But I thought yeah. Marv in home alone too. my sister scaring my dad, even Sheldon screaming because he had to take out an ear piercing hilarious every time in any context no matter who it is <laughs> no that's good yeah a lot of people will end up saying falling so it's a similar my thing. wife loves people falling down she has a video yeah. of her dad trying to ride a unicycle in a in a um, antique shop or whatever that she'll just watch mm-hmm. on loop and it's just the funniest i'll send thing. you a video for her <laughs> okay great my, my favorite falling video <laughs> um okay and the last one yeah. who inspires you right now Elon Musk inspires me right now. And I, I saw an article on Medium that I just thought was really tacky. So I'm going to call out the person. But I'm, that you know who you are, person on Medium, who <laughs> wrote uh, the five most overrated personalities right now or whatever. And he used Elon Musk's picture for the featured image. And I was like, don't be a heel. 
You know, don't be a better human than that. Like, if you don't like the person, fine. But there's nothing overrated about a real-life Tony Stark who wants to, like, land people on Mars. There's nothing overrated about that. If that's overrated to you, you are a cynical MFer. okay? Like, you need to <laughs> dial down your cynicism a little bit. This dude is actually building a private space program, okay? Get on board with the future. I want to ride on Elon Musk's rocket, and I don't mean that in an inappropriate way at all. I want to literally be on a SpaceX rocket, please. Um, If people are like, would you be one of the first people to Mars? I'd be like, no, but I would definitely be on the third or fifth group of people to go to Mars. I don't want to be the first. I'm not an early adopter. I don't want to be on the first one. But Not with that. Mission number three, mission number five. Yeah. Yeah, sign me up. I definitely want to go. Would you do it? Yes. Would you do it first? Eh. Send, send the monkeys. I, monkeys get the best out of, out of everything that humanity does, right? Because they're, they're the first ones in space. Uh, they're the first one to get, like, brain chips to control things. Like, they get to play with all the cool technology first. Of course, they do kind of get left up there sometimes, and that's a, that's a bit of a downer. It's like being a Russian dog, yeah, that's, right? That's you tough. just don't put me on that rocket. Yeah, please. <laughs> but cool. put me on the third one, the one that I, I think is probably likely to come back. That would be cool. <laughs> so if um, people want to look you up, I'll have show notes, but um, what would you like them to look up first to find you? Yeah, I mean, just go to ProfitFromLegal.com. That's the new hotness. That's what I'm into right now. Um, we're, we're building out Profit From Legal to, you know, work with our business clients to transform legal from a cost center to a profit engine in their business. We want to show you that using legal services will make your business more profitable, not less profitable. I know that that's counterintuitive. I know that it seems like an outlandish claim, but so is the claim that the world is round and that, um, you know, the earth revolves around the sun and anything new might seem preposterous at first, right? But give it a chance. Um, We're working through proof of concept right now, and it's just a really exciting time to do what we're doing because what we're doing is based on principles that we principles that we've had success with in our practice for years. Mm -hmm. So it's not like completely revolutionary. And also larger businesses are doing this and have been doing this. I think the uh, legal operations has grown something like 24 percent since 2019. Like 57 percent of of legal of uh, legal departments had a legal operations division or whatever in their legal department. Um, now it's the adoption rates over 80%. I mean, it's, it's growing, it's on trend. It's really big, but for small businesses, they're getting left behind. Um, and mm-hmm. I just did an article about this. Like you're, if you don't have legal operations in your business, you're getting left behind. I just published an article on medium on LinkedIn pulse, uh, on our blog, and you can go and read that. And so I would say hit up profit from Don't get left behind. Um, get some legal operations, get the most out of your, your legal department, learn how to profit from legal support. Um, and I'm just a, a pretty easy to get a hold of dude. So Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever, you can find me on any of those platforms. Just reach out, send me a message, an email. Um, I'm not too big for my britches, as we say in Nashville. <laughs> um, I will respond, and, and it will really be me, not some robot or virtual assistant. It'll be me. So reach out. Yeah. Tell me how much you hate me for not being woke. That's it. That's okay. I can take it. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, let me know if you hear from anyone. No, nah, I'm, um, I'm cool. sure I won't. <laughs> no. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Noel. It's nice to chat with you and get to know more about you and your career and how you're helping people. Well, so thank, thank you. you. I mean, I really appreciate you having me on and for giving me a chance to, to talk so freely about all of these things. And um, 
you know, I just I really enjoyed having you on the Profit from Legal podcast. I think that was some great content. So anything that I can do to provide value for your audience, I'm just happy to do it. And, and I really feel privileged to be here. So thank you so much. Thanks for joining me this week. You can find out more about our guest in the show notes. The music you're probably moving to by now is by Joe Mafia. Find him on Spotify. That's Joe, M-A-F-F-I-A. And Rob Meckey is responsible for our visual design. You can find him online by searching for Rob, M-E-T-K-E. Thanks, Rob. Let us know who you'd like to hear from or about your own experiences defining yourself outside of work at More Than Work Pod on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Give us a follow. Or visit our website at RobbiaSaid.com. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to More Than Work. We'll be back next week with another guest. In the meantime, while being kind to others, don't forget to be kind to yourself. <laughs>